The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Welcome, everybody. I'm glad you could tune in and join me today. I'm Diane Ray, and thanks for finding me on unityonlineradio.org, or maybe you're checking in on the podcast later. You can also get this show on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. So however you're tuning in, welcome. So today is going to be pretty interesting. You know, one of my favorite things to do, obviously, is ask questions and engage in conversations. Um, you know, one of, one of the things I think I'm, I'm pretty good at... <laughs> For the most part. Well, my guest today has kind of flipped the script on me with her book and has posed questions to me that have been really thought provoking. And I'm really enjoying this book. And I think you will, too. Jenny Lee is an author and expert in the fields of yoga therapy and spiritual living. And she's also a certified yoga therapist who has taught classical yoga and meditation for more than 20 years. And her new book that I've been working with here, it's very timely. It's called Spark Change, 108 Questions for Spiritual Evolution. And Jenny joins me from her home in Hawaii. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today for the conversation. Thanks, Diane. I'm super excited to be here and happy to be talking about sparking change. God knows we need it, right? Yes, absolutely. That's why I was saying this this book is so timely, <laughs> because we definitely need to spark change, adapt to change. Um, you know, and kind of get used to change that's that's happening, you know, the new normal. So, yes, it's definitely very timely. And as I was reading it, I was just thinking, you know, this book would be such a great selection for book clubs around the country. If anybody's thinking of a new selection, this would be great. And you could just stretch it over, you know, each week and just kind of delve into a diff different question with your club. I mean, this could really spark some amazing conversations. And this is also a book that you could keep on your nightstand, you know, and just kind of open it at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day to contemplate a question, just think things through. So I, I could see this book really, really being of value, really helping a lot of people. So how did this project come together? How did you put all this, all this down on paper? Yeah, thanks for asking that um, and for suggesting it to the book clubs. And I will just quick mention while that's on our minds that um, we've created a special guide for book clubs. And um, I'll make that link available to you so that you can share it. But um, if you're thinking about oh, doing a book club, we have a special free guide for that. Um, to go along with the book. But the book is kind of its own little book club in and of itself with all these questions. It does provoke some interesting conversation. And um, the idea for it really came uh, as a result of the yoga therapy work that I've done for the last 20 years with clients and um, seeing how important it was that I formulate questions in a way that would not... Uh, that would take them out of their normal way of thinking and really drop them into a deeper, more um, subtle awareness from an intuitive standpoint of their truth. And 
that's been something that I've worked on over time in my coaching practice, you know, really getting the right questions asked in the right way and, and, um, learning to listen to the subtle cues that people are offering when they're sharing their story and kind of, you know, where I can help them dive deeper. And it also came from just, you know, my own process of, um, journaling so many years, asking the same questions in my own mind again and again and again, working through them, chewing through them until I came to a satisfactory answer. And on top of all that, uh, coming from a background in yoga philosophy studies, um, the practice of introspection is a really critical practice, I think, for anyone on the spiritual path. And it is... um, Part of what yoga philosophy says takes us to a remembrance of our true nature, our soul nature, and how that is wanting to manifest and really be expressed in this life. So lots of different aspects to how this came to being, but um, it was fun to write. And I love talking about questions. So, And I love being with interviewers who are so adept like yourself at questions. And like you said, uh, hopefully flipping the script a little bit and giving you some some different ones to think about. Oh, it did. Definitely. As I was going through it, I was asking myself the questions and I've kind of went through the book and I I dog eared a bunch of the of the questions that really, you know, kind of stood out personally to me. And I agree with you. Introspection is really so important. Um, And I know I'll get this this quote wrong. Um, Who is it that said an unimagined life is not worth living? It's either Emerson or Thoreau. One of those great Uh, thinkers. Yeah, or was it Einstein? It oh, maybe it was. See, I don't know. <laughs> I'm yeah. getting my uh, my sources wrong. <laughs> oh, no, Socrates. But... Socrates. Oh, okay. Well, there you go, there was... Socrates. I knew it was a great thinker <laughs> of of that ilk. Yeah. But I always agreed with that that sentiment because I think a lot of times we don't ask ourselves those deep questions and we're not introspective enough. And I think a lot of times what holds people back is fear, right? The fear of well. If I really asked myself that question and was really honest, maybe I'd be afraid of the answer. And you you address that in some of the questions in the book. But do you think that's true in your work and with people that you've you've been uh, working with over the years that it really is fear that's holding them back from asking those questions? For sure, it's fear. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that we're seeing right now with the amount of rapid change in our world is that people are in just sort of uh, reaction mode. And we're being hit every day with new information and new. um, I know for like in Hawaii, we just went into our second round of complete shutdown. Um, So there's all that kind of reactivity that we have to come to each day with. And so it's hard sometimes to take the pause and do the reflective practices that make us really look beyond just the circumstance that we're reacting to, but really how can we respond, not react, but respond at a deeper, more conscious level. And, um, it does take courage. So, you know, you mentioned Fear being an obstacle to change, and it really is. It's um, it is what hangs most people up. But firstly, the fear of even kind of asking those deeper questions and and wondering what might arise if they took the time to be with themselves. But and then also the um, the things that would be required if they did 
see what needed changing and then what the what the action steps are going to be to get there can feel daunting at times. But what I'll say about all that is that even though fear is natural, and I think everyone has experienced it, particularly when it comes to making personal changes, it's also just a part of the process. And we have to walk forward into the fear with the fear with courage at the same time. Like we don't, we can't wait for the fear to go away. We just have to recognize that that's part of the process. And, um, and walk forward courageously anyway. And really, we always find greater levels of peace and fulfillment when we embark on conscious change from an empowered and proactive standpoint, rather than waiting until something catches up with us. And then we're just back into that, you know, reaction mode again. Right. I know some people that are just reactors in life. Like I have a friend who will readily admit that she's terrified of change. And we talk about it a lot. And when I look back over decisions that she's made or things that she's done, it's always been a reaction to rather than working with the fear and moving through it. Like she'll stay in a job until it just becomes so untenable that she'll end up getting fired or, or something like that, you know, or a relationship until it just, you know, is on fire. And, and I get that. I, I understand that people are afraid. I mean, I'm afraid of, of things all the time, <laughs> you know, but what, what you're saying, yeah. I think makes so much sense because to recognize, okay, I'm afraid, you know, and that's, that's all right. I can be afraid. I can feel that but not let it paralyze me. And I think that's where people get stuck. They just get paralyzed. Exactly. And I mean, so much of change also is self-acceptance. And so when we can be self-accepting and recognize the fear and the trepidation and that maybe not even knowing what to do next, um, that self-acceptance creates spaciousness in our consciousness where then we can start to move again and move out of that paralyzation. Um, so, you know, whenever I'm working with someone on a process of change, whether it's a career transition or a relationship ending or whatever, um, it's about accepting what is accepting who you are and where you are right now and not being judgmental of yourself at all. It's important that we be kind and compassionate to ourselves and have positive self-talk. Um, so that we can start to move forward in the ways that we feel like we need to, even if it's going to be a challenge. Right. I was reading through the book and I noticed that you cite the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda as a big inspiration. And I love Paramahansa Yogananda's teachings as well. And I, I've always had a copy of the Art of or the Laws of Success. Um, in whatever office or workspace I've been in. One time someone stole it. <laughs> and I always wondered, yeah. well, whatever happened? Did that person become super successful after they stole my art of success? Um, but I was just curious about how his work has been influ influential to you. Sure. That's so funny. I guess they needed that book more than you did at that moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I think anytime somebody steals something like my, my uh, slippers, we call them slippers or flip-flops here on the beach. <laughs> I was like, they needed it more than I did, I guess. So um, blessings to them anyway. But um, his, Paramahansa Yogananda is absolutely my greatest spiritual teacher. Um, his meditation practices have been my, my daily practice. Um, 
every day for the last 10, 10 or more years. And his writings on introspection and the spiritual journey have been really pivotal in my life, making, um, inspiring me to make changes that otherwise might have felt absolutely impossible. One of those being my move to Hawaii, um, because I, I left a business that I'd created and had for 10 years on the East coast. And I left family and friends and, um, uprooted my entire life, came here at a time when I was feeling like I really, really needed a change. I was feeling stagnant in what I was doing. I knew that, I, I wanted a different life. And, um, so that took a lot of courage and I was afraid. Um, but Paramahansa Yogananda's teachings really got me through that. I mean, he is so inspiring and, um, so reminding of the qualities that like courage and willpower, um, and how we can cultivate those, uh, in order to move through the changes that life inevitably brings, whether we choose it or not. <laughs> right. No, just really great stuff. I agree. I remember seeing a documentary with George Harrison and he said if he had not read the autobiography of a yogi, he would be a really horrible person. <laughs> he, uh, you know, continued on a, a spiritual path, you know, for the the rest of his life um, since then, you know, since reading uh, Paramahansa Yogananda's work. So um, hopefully that's that inspires someone to maybe check it out, but hopefully not steal the book. Um, from someone's desk, <laughs> whoever that, that unnamed person right. was. Uh, there's, there's also a great documentary of Yogananda I saw not too long ago called Awake that I, I really enjoyed on Netflix. So just giving a shout out yeah. to him uh, because his work has been so influential to, to so many people. I'm talking to Jenny Lee about her new book. It's called Spark Change, 108 Provocative Questions for Spiritual Evolution. And 108 is actually a pretty spiritual number. Um, one time at the yoga studio here in San Diego, I tried to do 108 um, <laughs> sun salutations. Sun salutations. <laughs> oh, wow. Was that tough? I mean, I kind of limped through it. But the number 108 is is pretty meaningful. And could you explain that to people who aren't, aren't aware of that number? Yeah, well, I go into a pretty thorough explanation in the book, but really briefly, um, I'll just say that it is a number that is found throughout different traditions, um, particularly spiritual traditions, um, scientific correlations to that number. Um, it, it, one of the things that I think is really cool <clears throat> is that it, there are said to be 108 earthly desires, 108 lies that human tell and 108 human delusions or forms of ignorance. So that's a lot of stuff to get through. Hopefully these 108 questions help people get through a few of those um, because definitely more freedom and happiness lies on the other side of those. But the, on, the, um, on the positive side, it's also been proposed that if one could take only 108 breaths in a day, that enlightenment will come. And, um, you know, the breathing practices within the yoga tradition are really foundational and such a great way of dropping us into stillness and quieting the mind. So learning to control the breath down to 108 breaths in a day, that's a great goal towards moving towards enlightenment. 
Right. I saw that and I thought, how could that even be possible? But I guess if you're up <laughs> at that level of control, I guess it's possible. I don't know. I don't know if I will try that, but <laughs> but it's it's interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, I and mean, the, I would say the yogis, you know, masters like Paramahansa Yogananda probably could have done that or did that many times when they went into samadhi. The breathing slows so dramatically. And so it's an interesting um, dichotomy. Often in yoga, we focus on the breath as kind of a, a mental focal place. And, and there's all these techniques of pranayama that um, regulate energy in different ways. But ultimately, in deep meditation, the whole focus on breath falls away. And you find that you're barely breathing and so masterful yogis really go into that breathless state where the consciousness detaches from physical um <laughs> movements and it's all very complex science that i don't begin to completely understand but i can imagine how um slowing down you know slowing down going back to that reactivity right slowing down our reactivity to things and one of the ways we can do that is through deep breath practice Right. Don't try this at home, though, without yoga training <laughs> by, by any means. Um, but the, the book is divided into 12 major themes. You've got nine questions per section. And these were the topics that really stood out that you encountered in working with your clients. Is that right? These were the ones that really were right. the, the most uh, impactful. Yeah, as I was compiling the questions, I was thinking back through all the years of um, coaching that I've done and, you know, the, the sort of the arc of change, I call it that arc of change, how we go from point A to point Z and what the various steps are. And so as I was grouping the, the questions into these pods, it became really um, clear that there were these t sort of 12 steps in a way. Um, maybe no coincidence, right? That there's 12 steps, but, um, it's, uh, I find it to be a pretty, uh, accurate overview of how people move through a process of change and not to give too much of the book away, but you know, we could name, um, we could name a few of those. And certainly the first one is just identifying what needs changing. Cause sometimes people feel a level of discontent, but they don't quite know what's wrong or what needs changing. And I know that's what happened for me many years ago before I moved to Hawaii. I just started feeling like what I was doing at the time I was done. Like there was, there was something else. There was a next chapter and a next phase, but I didn't know what it was yet. So another reason why I wrote this book is to help people gain clarity on their next steps. And I feel like the process of introspection and working with questions is so valuable for helping people think outside of the normal tracks that their minds run in every day. And, um, often when I've offered one of these questions to a client, they're like, wow, I've never thought of it like that. And just that moment of kind of jumping you off how you've repetitively been thinking about something in your life can open the door. For this is just so perfect. And especially now where we're talking about change, because I think what you said is, is so important to just identify what needs to change and and just and sit with that for a little while because I think you're right. So many times people will have just that low level depression or underlying discontent where you can't really put your finger on it, but you know there's something wrong. And once you can really identify that, 
then real change can take place. And I think a lot of times we'll ignore that, right? Even though you may get that tap on your shoulder for a while, like, hey, you know, this is the universe, pay attention here. You know, you're not that happy, but yet your fear of rocking the boat or making a horrible decision will keep you in that just low grade, low level gray, you know, depression. And it's such a shame, you know, yeah. we're going through life like that. How many of us are doing that? A lot, I would imagine. I think a lot. Yeah, I think a lot of people are in that, as you said, kind of gray area of discontent or depression where they don't, they know something needs to change, but they don't know what to do and they don't feel the energy to do it. And so gaining clarity, really bringing what it is that you're unhappy, most unhappy about and what you're go moving towards, what feels purposeful and what feels like that, that light at the end of the tunnel that you can start taking baby steps towards um, is the first step. It's very, very important. And that's where I, I think people need help often. And so my, my goal in writing Spark Change was to bring that sort of what I would offer as a therapeutic process to people into their hands that they can, like you said, just open up on a daily basis and pull out a question and kind of ponder it, sit with it. This isn't a book that you have to read cover to cover. It's definitely one that you can just, you know, grab a, grab one that's, that catches your eye or randomly open it up. It's amazing how the random opening, I'm getting more and more stories as, as the book rolls out and people have are starting to get their hands on a copy um, of ways that people have randomly found a question. So maybe it's a number pops into their head that they don't know why. Like my husband had woke up the other morning with a number in his head. I was like, well, go look at what number question it is and spark change. And of course it was the perfect question for him to be reflecting on at that time. And so I do think our subconscious or our intuitive consciousness, you know, guides us to the, those things that can help us if we're open to it. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm going to send this book right out right after I finish it uh, to my my friend that I was just telling you about, who's really fearful of change, because I think this might help. And when you think about it, there's there's different different levels of that. There's like the change we were just talking about. That's kind of the low level, you know, gray depression. You're slugging through. You're doing it. You kind of know what it is, but you don't want to admit it. Or you're thrust into the situation that a lot of people are finding themselves in right now where, you know, okay, I just lost my job, I wasn't expecting this, or there was a sudden death in the family that, you know, is going to rock your world. And, and that's just a sudden, sharp, quick change that you're going to, which is different. You know what I mean? You have the low level stuff and you have the sudden sharp thing that, oh, you know, oh my gosh, I have to react to this right now, you know, and then after, so there's a time of discombobulation, but then you have to kind of bring yourself back. Okay, this happened, you know, this, this horrible sudden death or, you know, this horrible job firing that I wasn't expecting, you know, what do I do? I mean, how do you counsel people in that position where they're, you know, just kind of in shock or, or recovering and looking to take that next step of change? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, one of the questions that I would offer, um, this is question number 43 in the book is what meaning do I want to give this, this circumstance or this event in my life? And I think the, the attribution of meaning, you know, we have this ability as humans to attribute meaning to something. So, 
that doesn't happen right away. And certainly you mentioned like sudden death or loss. And so there is that shock and grief that someone has to go through if that's occurring. But on the other side of the emotional release of grief, there we do need to assign meaning to things. And that's very personal. Um, there's no kind of universal meaning to any event. It's what's happening for us in the moment and what it has to do with our our spiritual evolution, right? That's the subtitle of the book is that these questions are about our spiritual evolution. So it's about how are we navigating this life, both as human beings and as spiritual beings. And I do believe that everything is for our, our soul's um, evolution and soul's expression uh, to a greater and greater degree. And so even tragedy even tragedy. And I've had my own fair share of tragedy. Uh, so I don't say this lightly. Um, on the other side of it, after the grieving process to, to hold the tragedy and sit with it and say, well, what meaning am I going to give to this? And how am I going to make this, you know, how am I going to make this mean something going forward for myself or for others or both? That's really important. Right. And I love what you're saying about that because it kind of dispels the myth of everything happens for a reason. And I always had a problem with that cliche because I could never really agree with it. I, and I think just exactly what you said, that we have to find th what makes sense. I don't think that there was some cosmic reason necessarily all of the time. I think things happen sometimes in our human experience, like a tragedy that we're going to go through that may have been an accident or it just happens. You know what I mean? Do you think people just try to say, oh, it, everything happens for a reason to just make themselves feel better? Well, I think oftentimes they say it to make somebody else feel better, but I'm not sure that it ever makes anybody else feel better. Uh, and I agree. I don't think that there's some cosmic, you know, reason for everything. I think that it's, again, very personal and very much up to us what reason we're going to give to something. And I mean, people ex have experienced all manner of traumatic accidents and losses that make no sense and, you know, are so terribly challenging to accept and yet right. I think acceptance does come when we can give it more meaning we're going to take just a short break stay with us if you have a question or would like to join the conversation lines are open 816-251-3555 i'm diane ray thanks for listening discover the power within Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. Thanks for joining me after the break. I'm Diane Ray, and you're on UnityOnlineRadio.org. I'm talking with author Jenny Lee about her new book, Spark Change, 108 Provocative Questions for Spiritual Evolution. And I hope that people grab this for their book clubs. I really think this would be perfect. Or even just for friends, you know, sitting around uh, for happy hour. I might do this at my next happy hour. <laughs> See how that goes over after they've had a couple glasses of wine, you know, and pop out a, a thought provoking question. Uh, but seriously, these are uh, really some 
uh, great introspective questions to kind of help us along. And just when we need it the most, where we're all experiencing things that are beyond our control, change that's happening right around us at lightning speed and has no sign of stopping, you know, uh, at any time in the near future. So this is, is really valuable work that you're doing, Jenny. So I wanted to talk about some of the other questions here too. And, and if we get anyone calling in 816-251-3555, they might have a question too. We'll see what happens. So we talked a little bit about change in the second segment and some of the challenges with either a long stand, longstanding change or even sudden quick uh, you know, tragedy or abrupt change that happens. And I wanted to talk a little bit about beliefs because I think the questions on belief are so important because I think people are really unaware of hidden beliefs that they carry for so many years, just things that are ingrained or that they've learned through family or society. And then they be kind of come to light or become uncovered. And how can this really be beneficial to kind of examine your beliefs? Well, um, I think you're right about the fact that we are, there's no end to the change. And examining our beliefs is such an important um, aspect to being able to move forward in a healthy way. Because uh, one of the questions that I share in the book is, are my thoughts or beliefs helping or hurting me? And we might have held a belief for a very long time, but if we step back and look at, is it helping me or is it hurting me? That really brings it home because it may or may not even be true. Just because we've believed it for a long time doesn't make it true necessarily. It might be something that we've just absorbed from someone else or from the culture in general. And it might really be holding us back from positive forward movement and change in our life. And so I think it is an essential part of um, a personal growth practice to occasionally look at the beliefs that we hold so deeply and say, is this, is this really helping me or is it hurting me? And also I would go farther and say, is it helping or hurting others? Um, because we're really all connected and what is for the greatest good is, you know, what's, what's right for one is really right for all at the highest level of of spiritual awareness. So if we're growing in that direction and seeking to be in harmony with all of those around us, we, we would be looking at whether our beliefs are harmful or helpful to not only ourselves, but those around us. Right. And that's so important to examine, especially now where it seems like all of us are stuck in our beliefs or we're holding firmly onto our beliefs in the divided society that we're in right now becoming more divisive it seems every day where each side doesn't want to examine or or look at, at the other side i actually had this happen um this week i did an interview with a writer his name's charles eisenstein and i had never really read any of his work before and he had an essay on his web page and i started reading it and at first i thought oh, you know this guy's crazy you know <laughs> I, I immediately went to that belief because what he was writing about i had such a, a strong hold on and then as i got to the end of the essay i kind of thought okay well that's a different take on on that and it, it shifted it a little bit, but, but then I realized even 
how much I'm holding on to stuff, you know, what beliefs that I have. And I think you're right. If we're going to move forward to really become, you know, more a more loving and, and inclusive and hopefully empathic society that we need to let go of those or some of those, or at least let them shift yeah. a little bit. I, I think recognizing that our beliefs are not necessarily fact is part of that. Um, we can, we, everyone is allowed to have their beliefs, certainly. And we can also recognize that someone else's point of view might be equally as valid. And it's, not that we need to get rid of all of our beliefs where there, some of them might really be serving us quite well. Um, but it's in recognizing that beliefs are sort of this fluid, uh, aspect to, to our consciousness and that everyone is in that same flow fluidity of beliefs. And it's more, for me, it's more examining, well, all right, how can I, be in harmony with someone maybe who holds a different belief? Can I allow them to be there and show respect and empathy and um, search for a solution that would really work for both of us, given our different belief structure? And, you know, I'm married. And um, one of the conversations that my husband and I have often had is, how can we disagree and be okay with that and still love and respect one another and move forward in our relationship with differences of, of belief. And I mean, fundamentally fundamental values we share, but we don't always agree on everything that comes up in life. So it's about that's what's so your highest work? value, right? <laughs> is your highest value harmony? Is your highest value unity? Is your highest value connection? Then you're going to need to, temper some of the beliefs sometimes. Right, right. That's so interesting. You know, I had a, a situation um, with my brother who's, who's five years younger. It was o- over a holiday and we got in this huge fight. I call it the Christmas blowout of 2013. I still remember the year. And a- after after we had this huge fight, the next day I called him and I said, you know, you have some beliefs about me and I have beliefs about you. And I think that we need to talk about it. And so we had a really difficult conversation and our relationship has, I mean, it's taken, it's taken some work. I mean, we're, we're definitely much closer now than we were then, but, but you're right. Like, you know, finding out from the other person, you know, talking about it, you know, what there were things that he believed about me that I thought were, were totally wrong and ridiculous. So, you know, we had to kind of have that conversation and, and really examine what the beliefs were. So I always find it interesting what, you know, what people, what beliefs that people have and they hold and how did they, how did they get there? I guess, how did those, how did those beliefs take root and how, how can they be changed? Yeah, I think you're giving a really great example of how you're, you and your brother valued the connection that you share as a, as family members more than you were dead set on your positions. And so you took the time to have that second conversation the next day in a moment of greater calm and you were seeking to understand one another. So there was that goal of mutual understanding and that's, that's what fosters harmony. And you might, I'm sure you don't agree with your brother on everything and that's all right, but right. <laughs> at least you 
created that foundation of connection and and tried for understanding with one another. And that's what I think we're all meant to do. And it can be hard. I mean, after that big blowout, I called um, a a friend who's who's a great teacher, this meditation teacher, his name's David G. And I said, I hate him. I hate his guts. (laughs) He goes, no, you don't. You know, you really don't hate him. Let's talk about it. You know, maybe you should really talk about it. So have, you know, and he encouraged me to make that phone call and I didn't want to do it. I was stubborn. You know, I'm not calling him. He's wrong. But, uh, but I'm glad that I did. And and I think, you know, now, especially a few years later, you know, and I look back at our, our relationship is definitely much, much better and stronger because of it, you know, but sometimes you have to swallow your pride and, and make that overture which isn't easy all the time. <laughs> That's for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the other chapters in this book, Spark Change, is um, willingness. And it, I write about this very thing that you're talking about. You had to be willing to get over yourself, get over your position and your defenses and your ego to reach out to your brother and just open the door for that conversation. And and he had to be willing to pick up the phone and, and respond and have that conversation too. So good on both of you for showing up to that. But it really changed any kind of change or any kind of um, conflict really does take a willingness to just relax off of our defensive egoic positions long enough to try to find some common ground. Right. And that's where it comes from, right? Our, our ego will sometimes get out of the way, our big sense of, of self and who, who we really are telling ourselves that we are, which a lot of times isn't true, but you're right. Sometimes that you just have to get over that. You know, I was thinking, I mean, we've talked about some of some challenging questions that you have in the book. I mean, out of all of them, do you think that there's one that's really the most challenging or are they all equally as challenging? Uh, Yeah. I'm asked a lot uh, what my favorite one is or what the most important one is or all that. And I think that um, it, it's very personal. It's very dependent on where someone is in their life and in their their practice, their inner practice of self-growth and development. Um, so each question is going to touch you differently at different times. And so I hope that this is the kind of book that people can go back to um, again and again and kind of find something that's useful because, um, you know, our consciousness is always is always evolving. Hopefully, hopefully it's not devolving. <laughs> um, but, and so as we gain more perspective on things, you know, you're, you wouldn't have the same interaction probably with your brother today that you did back in 2013, because you're a, diff- you've evolved, you're a different person, you have greater understanding. And so how, if any question is going to hit you today is going to be different 10 years from now. And that's kind of the cool thing about this process is that it really allows us to continue growing and it grows with us. That's so true, right? I mean, the change is always happening. We're always evolving. There's always uh, something else to learn. Um, One of of the people that I I worked with, Louise Hayes, she lived to be 92 and she would always try to learn something. You know, she would take ballroom dancing or, you know, Louise, why are you doing that? (laughs) And there's all because there's always something to learn and somewhere that you can change and grow. And when I look back, well, especially with that 
example, you know, definitely our relationship is much better than it was uh, back in 2013. You know, we talk a lot more regularly now and this, and, and we're adults, you know, this is like in your forties and fifties, you know, and you're still, so I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, it, you can teach an old dog new tricks. It's not too late to grow and change and learn and evolve. And I think that's, that's a beautiful thing about being human. I mean, when I look back at some beliefs and things that I held when I was younger and things that I thought were important. And, you know, I used to hate mushrooms. Now I love them. You know, <laughs> I used to hate zucchini. You know, I mean, those are dumb examples, but it, it is beautiful how we're able to continue to grow and, and change and evolve. And these question, questions in the book definitely help spark that, which I think is great and fun too. Yeah, thank you. And I love that example of Louise Hay and taking ballroom dancing because, you know, having that beginner's mind and always being a student and always looking to how we might um, just get curious about something new. It, it's, it keeps us young, for one thing. I mean, she lived such a vibrant life. Um, it, it keeps us young. It keeps us uh, engaged. And when we stop doing that, we become stagnant. And the whole energy, life force energy within us just begins to disintegrate and die. And I mean, it's like an early death, right? I know people in their 20s and 30s that aren't doing any kind of growing. And they're, they're older than people I know in their 60s who are still vibrantly exploring new things and exploring themselves and their own inner world. So it's definitely a lifetime practice. Right. I think so. We were probably always growing, changing and, and evolving, you know, and, and until the very end. And I wanted to ask you uh, some of the other questions that, that popped up here. These are so great. You should see my book. It's all folded up. <laughs> it's all dog-eared because awesome. I was saving some of the, uh, <laughs> the good questions like one of them I just I, we just talked about what can I learn from the most challenging person and my brother was def definitely one of them <laughs> he still challenges me uh, all the time um, also other people I've worked with you know having to have those conversations but I think um, a great one to talk about is accountability that that's a tough one because I think so often we want to look to what's the cause outside of ourselves oh it's that person's fault they're they're an idiot you know <laughs> we don't want to accept responsibility in those in those situations. And you uh, talk in the book what, so beautifully. You encourage the act of allowing or just accepting a situation sometimes without labeling it good or bad is a good way to to sometimes deal with that. Yeah, you know, accountability I think should be the word for 2020. <laughs> Yes, there's I don't know, man, it is just a blame fest out there in the world of media and um, news and politics. And it's just crazy. Right. So I think we're being shown just terrible examples in the big world of how not to be accountable. And yet accountability for whatever is happening in our lives is fundamental to our ability to move forward. And it doesn't mean that we cause the original circumstance, but we are accountable to how we show up to that circumstance. And we're accountable for our responses, our reactions, or lack thereof, hopefully, um, our engagement with the process of change, how we're going to um, what, what qualities we're going to show up 
every day to life with? Are we going to show up with kindness and the willingness to look for solutions? Or are we going to just keep showing up and pointing fingers and laying blame? Because that's not going to get anyone anywhere. And um, uh, yeah, so accountability is big, big on my radar right now. It is. It's a big one because we just, it's, it's tough to admit that, but aren't we really in, in every situation somewhat involved in some way for the outcome? I mean, I know sometimes things, things happen out of our control, but most of the time we are participating, right? Absolutely. I mean, we're participating in how we, yeah, absolutely. In how we navigate through it, even if it might be something that we don't have um, a choice about what's happening. I mean, for instance, I mentioned here in Hawaii, we've gone into our second wave of complete shutdown. And so uh, I can't control that things aren't open. Um, so I don't have a choice about certain activities, but I do have a choice on my mental state and how I'm going to comport myself each day, given the facts that are. And so acceptance, recognizing that this is what is, how can I make the best of the situation that we're in right now? How can I continue to be positive and be in service and be, you know, inspire myself? What can I look to to stay inspired? Those are the, those are the choices. And that's where I have some control. Right. That's a good point. I mean, we don't, we don't control everything that happens, but we do control our reaction and response to those situations. So we do have we do have somewhat of, of control over that. And and I like that idea of, you know, allowing or accepting a situation without without labeling it, you know, just kind of looking at it. And that's something I've been trying to do, you know, be the witness and observe a situation. I'm, I know I've been trying to do it recently because like you mentioned this whole COVID thing, and I'm sure we're going to be locking down everything again, you know, here in San Diego uh, any day now. And I'm just was bemoaning the fact that, you know, well, I can't fly to see my family and I'm, I'm feeling really, you know, depressed and sad. I haven't visited my sister and, you know, I, I can't control that. What's happening with that situation, obviously, but not really, I guess, trying not to label it or just say, oh, this is so bad. This is so horrible. You know, getting in that loop of, of that everything's exactly. bad, it's everything's getting horrible. In the, yeah, it's getting in the, the judgment loop. And so the practice of not labeling or not judging is really powerful. It's really hard. I mean, if you try to go an entire day without labeling anything as good or bad, oh, I like that. I don't like that, <laughs> you know, um, it's hard because we do it constantly and we do it subconsciously. I mean, it's almost, um, it's, it's just a second nature for humans. We label everything. It's just a continual judgment cycle in the brain. We don't even realize that we're doing it until we consciously do a practice like what I'm talking about. But once you do that for try to do it for a whole day, it is astounding and it keeps us suffering. That's the thing. Judgment keeps us suffering because we're, we're constantly on that roller coaster of happy one second, not happy the next. Everything's good one minute, not good the next. And if we just take away that whole concept of labeling things as good or bad 
or judging people as good or bad, suddenly there's so much less static. There's so much less suffering. It's just much more peaceful. Right. That's true. I think I read, I wish I knew the amount of judgments that we make. I read somewhere, and I can't remember the number, but there's, there's a certain amount of judgments that we make like about a person, you know, initially, even within the first two or three minutes. And I've tried to catch myself, you know, doing that where I'll, you know, for example, like you go into Starbucks and you're like, oh, you know, this, this barista looks like, uh, you know, we could have been a roadie for Pearl Jam or, so, you know, something like that where I'll, I'll, I'll start, <laughs> I'll go into some ridiculous judgment and then I'll try to catch myself. Well, you know, why, why are you doing this? You know, you're, you're making a judgment. You don't even know this person. So it, it's a practice, but it is funny when you start doing that and, and kind of training yourself to recognize it. It's really interesting how often we do it, you know? It's embarrassing I so think, sometimes. Yeah, it is. It's astounding. When I mean, when I first started doing that practice, I was astounded. So one of the things that I do to replace judgment when I catch myself doing it is I'll just say, huh, isn't that interesting that fill in the blank? And it's more like you mentioned being the witness or the observer. It's more like just being an observer where I don't need to have an opinion about it. I don't need to have an opinion about that person or the situation. It's just like, oh, isn't that interesting? This is happening. And what what can I see about that? Or what can I learn about that? And it's more just, you know, curiosity, not being judgmental. Right. <laughs> yeah, being and being curious is great. I mean, I think we should all continue to be curious you know, as long as, long as we're, we're conscious. So we have just a few minutes left. It's been so fun to chat with you. And it's too bad you're not here in San Diego. We could we could do a, a question and answer happy hour. <laughs> I'll bring the book. You know, oh, well, spark change. Zoom. <laughs> right, right. There, there's always Zoom for that. Um, so one of the questions that I thought was really interesting in the book was about intuition. And I was wondering, one of the, it says, as a child, was my intuition encouraged or invalidated? And I was just wondering if your intuition was encouraged or invalidated. Mm. Um, I would say that it was neither, really. Uh, my mom was a very spiritual person. She's the one who raised me. Um, she wasn't necessarily somebody who talked to me about intuition. I guess if I had to say one or the other, I would say it was encouraged, but we didn't really talk about it. That was something that I came to understand maybe in my 20s or 30s as I started studying more spirituality and self-development works of different authors and um, really deepening my meditation practice, which is such a big part of how intuition gets stronger in my opinion. And, um, and so that's a question that I have worked with a lot of clients on because as the more that in touch I've become with my intuition, the more I realize what a powerful guide it is. And there are many people who have experienced, um, a real invalidation of their inner knowing their gut instincts and their inner knowing as small children or even young adults. And so it's, it is oftentimes quite a process to lead somebody back to that, um, trust in themselves. It's really self-trust and, um, but it's, it's life-changing when we can come back into self-trust 
Right. And something that a lot of us will be leaning on, you know, more so now, especially in, in this time and place that we're in right now. I mean, I've been trying to, you know, really listen to my, my intuition and my gut and, and get in touch with that and, you know, work on my meditation practice, which is, I always tell people that's why they call it a practice <laughs> because you have to, you know, kind of cultivate it and, and work on it. And that's where you're going to find those answers that are out there are really, really deep in your gut. So I think it's important. But yeah, for me as well, I don't think it was really invalidated uh, and not really so much encouraged either. Um, but yeah, as you start to study and, and move on your, your spiritual path, if you're a seeker, then that's something that you really want to get more in touch with, get in touch with your intuition. And it's going to, it's going to serve us all well moving forward. You know, who knows what's going to happen at the end of, of this year or years to come, you know, to kind of reach into that for the answers. So we have just a minute and I want people to be able to find you because I think your work is so valuable. So the best place to go would be Jenny Lee, L-E-E, yogatherapy.com. Is that the best address? Yep, that's my website, um, J-E-N-N-I-E, Lee, yogatherapy.com. Um, people can get a free excerpt of Spark Change there. There's also the bonus guide that I mentioned for book clubs there and for a special one for yoga teachers. So lots of extra content and freebies um, at JennyLeeYogatherapy.com. And the book Spark Change is available on all major booksellers, Amazon, Sounds True, Barnes & Noble, etc. Pick it up. I encourage you guys to do it. Thank you so much, Jenny, for joining the show today. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you, Diane. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Michelle Phillips, a celebrity makeup artist, beauty expert, self-confidence coach, and Hay House author. My podcast, Beauty and Beyond, is the place for women navigating the challenges of the aging process. Listen in for my professional advice, as well as my expert guests, as we share valuable tips, practical tools, and empowering resources to help you not only look amazing, but also live an amazing life part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and available wherever you get your podcasts.